And so we're still in the book of Daniel. We're going to be continuing on for a little while longer, um, unless the Holy Spirit directs me this uh, next couple weeks uh, to to do a different style of sermon um, around the Christmas time. I think we're going to stay right here for the next uh, next couple chapters. And so we're going to finish up uh, in chapter 9 in the book of Daniel. And we started off in the first part as we uh, pray, as we well dealt with uh, Daniel's prayer. Uh, we titled that sermon the Penitence Prayer because largely it's, it's Daniel um, praying for penance or praying for forgiveness for not just himself but his people. And theologians like to call this the interrupted prayer. And I had mentioned that last week because it's interrupted. But since we weren't going to deal with the interruption, I didn't want to call it the interrupted prayer. But today we're going to deal with that interruption. And we're going to be dealing with the 70 weeks of Daniel. We're going to be dealing with some of those major issues. The, the, the problem is, is that this particular chapter is one of the most highly contentious and contended and, and, and controversial chapters in, uh, really, it's been debated by scholars and theologians for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, ever since it was written um, all those many years ago with Daniel as he sat in uh, Persia. And I think that when we look at this, you're going to see that there's a lot of controversy. You can see where it can really come out because some of the things that I may be sharing with you, which is how I feel like that the research has led me and, and where I think God is taking us through this, um, it may not be exactly what you may have heard before in the past. And I want to encourage you guys, don't just depend upon what I tell you. You need to depend upon what Scripture tells you. You need to try to line things up for yourself. And so every sermon we have, oftentimes I will throw out uh, book titles or I'll give you suggestions like you, maybe you should do this for a particular study. I don't do that just because I'm bored or because um, I want to make everybody think, oh, Pastor Al is so smart. I'm not that smart. And if you think I am, <laughs> I don't know why because I really am not. Uh, but I am diligent in my study and I don't put off God's word. And so sometimes he hits me, the Holy Spirit just hits me and says, hey, here's a really neat study. And I just like to throw that out to you guys. So we're dealing in Daniel chapter 9, and just to give you guys a little bit of uh, uh, recap from last week, um, you'll notice that that Daniel um, was praying, a very deep and heartfelt prayer. And it's interesting that while he was praying, that there were two other really important prayers. And I think if you want to do a really good study and compare these, you'll see that there are three what we call, what I guess theologians would call primary prayers in the Old Testament. One of those is found in Ezra chapter 9. Uh, another one is in Nehemiah chapter 9. And then the final one that we would talk about, which we spoke last week, is in Daniel chapter 9. I I find it interesting and probably coincidental more than anything, although, can we say anything's coincidental when dealing with the Spirit of God? I don't think so. But it's just unique that it's all three of them are in chapter 9. So you got three the three nines to look at. So it's Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9. Look at those prayers. Read them over again. Um, and just ask the Holy Spirit to, to move through you. We mentioned last week that... Um, that Daniel was such an important book, not just to us to study, but also for Jesus and the first, um, the first disciples that he had, the first 12. Um, and so much so that in Matthew chapter 24, if you have your Bibles, and I encourage you to open up to Matthew 24, because I think it's important that we, that we see it for ourselves, not just uh, take you know, someone's word for it. Now, keep your finger on Daniel chapter 9. We're going to get back to that. Um, but I want to just uh, jump over to Daniel chapter 24, this is the Olivet Discourse that we talked about last week. This is when the questions that the disciples were asking Jesus, he wanted, they wanted to have answers and he wanted to be able to give it to them. And this is what he says. So in, in Daniel chapter 24, starting in the third verse, um, this is how it goes. It says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming, or the signs, and of the end of the age? So he, they ask him 
three things. We mentioned that last week. Those three things. What are the signs? When will these things happen? And, and, and when will be the end of the age or the end of the world? These are the three questions that they pose to Jesus. Now, we know from reading the other Gospels, because this is found not only in Matthew, but it's also found in Luke and Mark, that there were three disciples, that, or four disciples, excuse me, that came to him. That was the three usual suspects, and that was Peter, James, and John. Now, James and John were both brothers, and Peter also had a brother, Andrew. Andrew was that transition guy that was not completely part of the original, the, 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 the inner circle, but he was part of that secondary circle of three. And so oftentimes you see him floating back and forth and bringing people to Jesus. And this is one of those rare times that you see him sitting down being taught directly uh, by Jesus with the other three. And so Jesus answered them in verse 4 and said, See to it that no one misleads you. This is the first thing that he says, and that's why I think it's so important because I remember um, back in, in the late 80s, early 90s, when a book series came out that reported to give you the answers of when, um, when things are going to happen. And it was the Left Behind series. They made movies of it. They, they did all kinds of marketing campaign, made a lot of people a whole lot of money. Unfortunately, there's not a tremendous amount of scriptural backing for those books. And they're great fiction, and I enjoyed reading at least the first one, but I don't think it was Bible study material, but I saw within churches, friends of mine, and as well as a church that I was attending at the time, um, I wasn't in ministry at the moment, but they were all doing Bible studies, and their main text was the fictional account written by those two men called Left Behind. And I thought, well, why would you want to use a fictional book to study scripture when you've got a non-fiction true book that you can study right here. Now, I have no problem using books to help augment our study. I have no problem with that. Um, there are a lot of great scholars out there, old and new, that are writing wonderful things. Ecclesiastes tells us there's no end. There will be no end to the writing of books. We know that, um, but it's you have to remember that when you're reading a book, you're reading an individual uh, and their opinion. When you read the Bible, you're reading the Word of God. And Timothy tells us that this is God's word breathed into existence and sustained by God himself and the spirit of God. And obviously we can go into a lot more about that, but that sermon is not about the authenticity of scripture. We did that a few months ago. Today is really about the veracity of the um, of the prophecy that Jesus gave and the timeliness of it, you'll see. And so Jesus is using, um, he starts off, he says, don't let anybody mislead you. And how do we do that? We do that by immersing ourselves in the Word of God. He said, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead you. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. You will see um, and see that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but the end is not yet. So wars and rumors of wars are going to happen, but that won't be the sign. Okay, then he says, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom in various places. He says, and there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pains. He says, in all these things, the, the rumors of wars, the wars, the, the, the pestilences, the plagues, the earthquakes, the famines, all of that is just the very beginning. It's the tip of the iceberg of when the end is going to come. And he goes on, he says, and they will deliver, um, he goes, but in all these things are the beginnings, the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. But because of my name, at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise and mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's will love will grow cold. I see a lot of this happening right now in our day and age, where we see so little love in the public sphere and so little grace and very much lawlessness. Um, and then it goes on and talks about the Antichrist. Um, and then he says in verse 14, he says, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's the thing he's talking about, the gospel being preached to all nations. That's why we go, that's one of the reasons. Obviously, if somebody said, why do you go and preach the word to foreign countries? Why do we have missions, both foreign and domestic? In fact, this month we're going to be talking about Lottie Moon. And that's the big 
big question is why do we do foreign missions? Well, largely because Jesus tells us to. A, he says go and we should go. He says make disciples, we should make disciples. He says baptize, we should baptize. And we should do it in every nation. But there's something else being said here too. In this one he says that the end won't come until the, the whole world has been testified to. And so that's an important concept. And verse 15 says, Therefore you will see the abomination of de uh, desolation which was spoken of through, the da through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. And then it says, Let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee in the mountains and whoever is in his um, rooftop. And I'm not going to go any further than that. You guys can read that on your own. But it's important to remember a couple things there. First of all, that Jesus is giving us an indication of, of a lot of things about Daniel. First of all, we know the book of Daniel was written by Daniel. Not because we've done exhaustive study on it, but because Jesus told us. And that's good enough for me. I don't need anybody other than Jesus Christ telling me something's true before I believe it. And the other thing is that Jesus says, as he's talking about that, that Daniel was a prophet. And so when a prophet in the Old Testament had certain criteria to, to meet in order to be a prophet, right? They had to be 100% accurate. And that's an important concept because we're going to be dealing with the accuracy of all that today. So now let's go ahead and flip back over to Daniel chapter 9. I want the Matthew 24 just to sort of hang in your head because Matthew 24 and 25 really do deal with a lot of these issues. And I think that um, when you start looking at, at, at prophecy, you start looking at what Jesus said and how he pointed us back to the Old Testament, which coincidentally was the only Bible that the first century church had to begin with. Um, I think it's important that we look and hear what Daniel has to say. So in verse 20 uh, of Daniel chapter 9, it begins with the interruption. And now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my supplications before the Lord my God in behalf of before the Lord my God uh, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God while I was still speaking in prayer then the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision previously came to me and my extreme in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now I'm going to stop there just for a second because we've got to break this down just a little bit so we understand where we're at. So we have terms, right? We need to make sure that our terms are accurate and we, we all understand what we're dealing with. First of all, we see that uh, some things are happening. First of all, Daniel is, he's talking about his praying. He switches now to sort of a narrative mode and he says he was praying and he was confessing his sin. Now I find it just incredibly amazing that Daniel himself, who by the way, one of only two men in the Bible that no evil was actually spoken to them. We've talked about this before. Both Joseph and Daniel. Nothing evil by God in God's word is ascribed to them. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't accuse them. Like, for instance, the uh, the, the the magistrates and the, uh, the the magi that were trying to convince the king at the time that Daniel was, uh, was a pagan and he ended up being thrown into the lion's den. But we know that that wasn't a sin that was accounted to him. But Daniel himself, as holy and as righteous as he was, and we're going to talk about him a little bit more as we go through this, the reality is, is that Daniel, as, as righteous as he was, as holy as he was, he was still sin, he was not sinless, he was still a sinful creation, just like all the rest of us. And he needed to be able to go before the Lord and pray and beg forgiveness, which tells us that that's something that we as individuals should do. Also, you'll notice that while he was speaking in verse 21, it says, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision, previously came to be um, uh, seen came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering now Gabriel which literally means mighty man of God that's what his name means in the Hebrew he shows up and it's interesting that we have the name Gabriel in all of scripture we only have three names of angels that are listed we have as you know Michael the archangel who's always pictured at war and battling and and as a captain of the host we have Gabriel which we'll get back to in a second and we have Lucifer who through his own pride and arrogance uh, decided he wanted to set his throne at the same level of God. He says, I will set my throne uh, next to the Most High, as though he's going to elevate himself a creature uh, to the elevated to, elevate to the level of, of, of creator, which obviously that would never be. So that extreme pride. So two, one out of the three uh, had already fallen. So we only have three angels mentioned. Gabriel himself was always, is always mentioned by, delivering a message about the Messiah. That's that's his like his whole thing. Every time we see Gabriel, he's talking to somebody about Jesus. And I find that really unique and amazing that we see the mighty man of God and also notice that uh, 
that Daniel said he was a man. A lot of times people picture angels, especially at the Christmas season, with these beautiful wings. And the, the truth is, Scripture only talks about one set of angels, which were not given names of, the seraphim, that actually have wings. Um, and some of the other angels that are mentioned in Revelation and some of the other areas. Uh, but for the most part, we know that none of the named angels were ever pictured with wings on their back. So we need to get that out of our mind altogether. There's no indication that he had wings. Um, he looked like a man. He looked like the same man, uh, Gabriel, who had who had already been in a previous vision. So he knew, Daniel knew, that this was not just a man, this was an angel, but he also didn't have any exalted uh, image of him with the wings and halos and all the things that you see in modern art. Now, that being said, we also have another thing that's going on here, is that during this, uh, during this, this time that he was... Praying, it says here in the very final part of verse 21, it was the time of the time of the evening offering. I find it interesting that Daniel, now in his 80, near the in the middle of his 80, 80 years of his life, um, he has been away from Jerusalem now for over 60 years. He's getting close to 70. He knows that the time of uh, the time of their exile is about done, and so he what sort of spurs all this prayer on, and and he's ready to see God move and move his people back to the nation of Israel, knowing that he probably won't ever go back. I mean, his age is so advanced, and, and he probably is just not going to make the trip back. And Daniel is praying about this, but he is still marking time around the time that there would be evening sacrifices taking place in the temple. In Daniel's mind, even though the temple was destroyed and not a single, not a single sacrifice was being offered, in Daniel's mind, the sacrificial system was still alive and well, and it was time for him, a Jew, not a Levite, not a priest, it was time for him, a regular Jew from the tribe of Judah, to, to, to bow his head and pray because it was time in the evening when they would be offering uh, offerings to God in the temple. And so he had that in his mind. To his mind, it had never ended. That God's worship didn't end even though the temple had been destroyed. Which is great news for us because even though we're not meeting face to face in a building made by man, we know that we are still supposed to gather. We're so still supposed to worship. We're still supposed to, to be in the presence of God and seek the face of God. It just makes it a little more difficult. But I found in my life that things are the most difficult are oftentimes the things that are the most worth it in the end. Now we see verse 22. Um, Daniel is, is giving us this, this, this thing. He said that uh, Gabriel, he, gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight and understanding. Wouldn't that be great if we had an angel, personal angel, show up to give us insight and understanding? And then it says, At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. There's a lot of things packed in verse 23. At the beginning of it, he is, uh, uh, it says there, at the beginning of your supplication, the beginning of your prayers, the moment you knelt down, the command was issued, before you actually said a word of need, want, or desire before the Lord, already the answer was being sent to you. Is that not amazing that even though we can, are not always able to articulate what we're trying to pray about, but even as we bow our heads and we, we prepare our hearts for worship and prayer, He already knows our our needs. He already knows our wants. He's already prepared a response for us. And this is the same case with Daniel. Before he ever really even got started, God had already had an answer for him. And it already sent Gabriel with that answer so that Gabriel could give that answer to him. Um, look what else it said here. I have come to you for you are highly esteemed. Some versions say greatly beloved. I think this is an amazing passage that needs to just take a moment to look at it. Because there's a couple people in the other, there's like, there's, there's always titles that are given in scripture. One of my favorites is Abraham, who's called a friend of God. Well, in Abraham's case, in Genesis, I think it was, uh, let me see, chapter 19-ish uh, and, and beyond, um, Abraham was called a friend of God. And because of that, Abraham was privy to some things that were going to happen um, that, that Abraham needed to know about, right? He was given a, a foretaste of God's ability to be able to act, right? And that was the sign that he was a friend of God. God said, you are my friend. I'm going to trust you with this vision of and knowledge of, of, of things that are about to take place. 
in the New Testament, in John chapter 14 and 15, I think maybe even 16, um, Jesus pulls his disciples together and says, you are my friends. You're no longer my disciples. You're no longer my followers. You're my friends. And as such, I'm going to clue you into some things that are happening. I'm going to give you some foreknowledge. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay some wisdom on you, right? So it seems as though from the Old and New Testament, you have that continuity of, 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 of titles. And so a friend of God means something. And so when Jesus says that, that or when the Bible says that because he died on the cross and, and, and paid the, the penalty for us. We, he gives us the ability to be call ourselves the children or the friends of God ourselves. And so that's a title we have, and he's given us the ability to have this knowledge. We don't have so much Gabriel showing up giving us knowledge because we have God's word fully written from Genesis to Revelation. We don't need the angels, so to speak, to give us anything new. Because we got it all. We have everything we need right here. If an angel shows up and tries to tell you anything new that's not in Scripture, they're not from God. I'm telling you that now. And so, as we move through this, there's another title that was given. The title uh, that came from, from the courts of heaven to Daniel. It says, for you are highly esteemed, greatly beloved. I want you to think about that title because in all the Old Testament, Daniel's the only one that's called greatly beloved. Okay, He's the only one that's highly esteemed. But if you think about it, there is at least one other person in the New Testament that has that same title, and that's, that's John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I find it interesting that both John and Daniel were gifted with something, not just knowledge and discernment about things that are, are about to happen, but they were both given those apocalyptic visions that we have in the final uh, chapters of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. And so both of these individuals who were called beloved of God, the highly esteemed, greatly esteemed, these ones were the ones that God gave these amazing visions to. And so he had that Consistency of relationship from the Old and the New Testament. And that's something that we as Christians, we as the, as the lovers of God, can, can, can hold tight to. That we have that same level of relationship. That that constancy in our relationship is going to carry us through. And then we get into verse 24. So really from 24 to 27, these four verses are some, like I said before, the most contentious and the most controversial passages in all the Bible, I believe. And I think it's something that we as Christians need to look at. Um, not only do we need to know end times um, uh, philosophy or, or theology, but we also need to know that God is on the throne, that he understands, that he's clearly um, uh, in control. And that's something that we're going to see today as we look through this. So before we get any further, before we start reading this, we need to understand something. I mentioned it last week. I've preached about it in sermons past, but we need to understand a what the Sabbath really is, right? That Sabbath day rest that, that God took in Genesis in the first chapter is an important concept because that sabbatical concept is carried forward in sets of seven all the way through the Old Testament and well into the New. And even to the current day, it's all about the Sabbath. And if we don't understand that Sabbath concept, because it truly wraps around everything in the Old and New Testament, then we really don't get and we miss most of the point of the gospel message. Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. I believe it's in Hebrews. talks about the, the Sabbath rest, the final rest that we get as, as humans. Um, is that moment that we step out of this earth and into heaven and we get to have that final, ultimate Sabbath rest for all eternity. And that's the end concept, but there's so many other parts to it. And I think it's important that we get this. Daniel knew it very well. Most of the Jews that would have been reading this had gotten the point. They knew where they were with this. Now, we're getting this in verse 24. It says 70 weeks, or or the word there, shabulum, um, literally means 70 sevens, right? We have the word translated weeks, but that's only because... It, it, it's just seven days in a week, and so we're talking about 70 weeks. It's easy to do that. But the actual Hebrew word there is shabulum, and it means seven. So 70 sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions. Now, here's where he's, he's given us the answer. He says there are, there are three things, that are, I mean, five, six things, sorry, six things that, um, that are going to happen to sort of signify the end of the age. And he's talking about the end of all time, right? He says that to finish the 
the transgressions. Number one, to make an end of sin. Number two, to make atonement for iniquity. Number three, um, everlasting righteousness. Number four, to seal up the vision and the prophecy. Number five, and finally to anoint the most holy place. These are the six things that need to happen, right? The six things that that, that he's talking about throughout this whole process. And these 70 weeks have have been decreed for your people. Now, verse 25 gets into the area where he starts to to break it down just a little bit. He says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Now I want to just stop there for a second because there's a lot to unpack here. Remember last week I talked about 70. I talked about the idea of Shabulim, the idea of 77s, and, and the idea is that oftentimes we, as, as in, in English, we look at, 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 at a week as, as a week. But we don't seem to realize that there are weeks of days. Yes, we got that. But there's also weeks of weeks. There's weeks of months. There's weeks of years. Um, and it can go on beyond that. There's sets of seven and everything. And that's what, that's what God is trying to, to bring out here. And it's clearly that he's talking about years. He's not talking about, uh, about actual weeks because he wants us to know that. So we need to get out of our mindset that we're talking about 70 weeks and we're talking about 70, um, seven, 70 sets of seven years that need to take place in order to make all this happen. He says you are to know and discern that. This from the and this is something also we are to know and discern this. We are to understand what's being said. There's not a mystery here. He wants us to clearly understand what he's saying. He says from the issuing of the decree to the rebuilding and the restoring of Jerusalem until the Messiah Nagid, the Mashiach, Mashiach Nagid, so the Messiah, the King, right? That's the Hebrew there. Um, will be seven weeks and in sixty in sixty two weeks, um, and it will be built again with the plaza and the moat. That's 16, that's that's uh, 69 weeks and the plaza and the moat and, and everything will be built even in distress. And so we have that information that's laid out for us. We know about the, the idea of the sevens, but this is where it gets really unique because we need to understand some things about how how we interpret Scripture. First of all, we use Scripture to interpret that. And everything that, that we'll be talking about today will be tied to other places. Unfortunately, in a little sermon like this, I mean, where I only have about 45 minutes, I'm not going to be able to give you all the information you need on this. There is a ton of information. And if you really want to get one of the most definitive books on the topic, and I highly recommend this, I've mentioned it before, it's written by a man named Robert Anderson. Anderson. He was knighted by the Queen back in the 1800s. He wrote a book called *The Coming Prince*, um, and it's a powerful book. In fact, much of uh, much of the, your study notes in your study Bible, much of our modern understanding of this passage comes from the research, the original research that Robert Anderson did all those many years ago, back in the um, in the 1800s. And so we need to understand that there is that God is talking about a trigger and a target point, right? There's a trigger. There's a point where it begins and there's a point that it ends. And these are the points that we're talking about, that trigger and target points. The trigger is the decree that is going to rebuild the temple. That trigger point happens in Nehemiah chapter 2. Now there's a few other places where some decrees are made but the decree that Daniel is talking about here has not happened yet. This is a future point for him. This trigger happened in in um, uh, March 14th in 445 BC. That's 445 years before Christ and we see on March 14th that decree deals, oh, that's the only decree that was given in, in Ezra, Nehemiah and that time frame that deals only with the uh, city of Jerusalem. And so we know that that's the fixed date. And then you have to look at something very interesting here. See, this is where it all gets into numbers. I don't want to get too much into the weeds. You know, obviously you're sitting here saying, well, why do we need to study this like this? What is What does this have to do with us today? I'm, I'm like, well, I, I think it does have a lot of relevancy. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but the first and foremost, we need to understand that when God gives us a time frame, he doesn't give us generalities a lot of times. Sometimes he'll give us he'll give us a general statement, but when he's being specific like this, he says seventy sevens. That means seventy sevens, seventy sets of seven years. When when all this happens, this is going to happen. 
And that 69th week, this is going to happen. Right down to the very day. We need to realize that. Now, we also need to understand how God um, deals with timing and, and, and how he deals with months, days, weeks, and things in Scripture. So in, so in Genesis chapter 7 and 8, God defines what a year is. It's 12 months with 30-day months in them. That means if you add that up, that's 360 days in a, in a biblical year. Now, I'm not making this up. You can go and look in, in Genesis. That's just the way it is. God has defined it this way. And, and it seems like all of the biblical chronology from the, from, from the time in Genesis all the way through uh, uses that 360-day calendar. You say, well, well, Pastor, everybody knows we have 365 days and there's always that, that leap year every four years. Um, obviously, God's got it wrong. Well, no. And I can't explain why in the beginning there was a 360-day calendar and there were 30-day months that were equal, uh, broke it up into 12 cycles. I have no idea why it was that way and it's this way now. There's some science out there. You can do your own research. Um, there's some really interesting research on this. But it's also, I find it quite interesting that every single calendar, every single calendar, and every single culture before the year 701 BC also had 360 day calendars. But sometime in 701 B.C., something happened to the earth or to the world or the universe or to the solar system, and I have no idea what, but somehow, and scientists may say, well, they just had it wrong for a whole long, for a long period of time, and suddenly they got it right. But I find it interesting that, that every single calendar, every single culture so far, so far um, uh, uh, you know, spread out all over the world had the same exact calendar, and then right around the same date, they all changed to the right one. It's like they all had this, this equal epiphany. Maybe Gabriel was, was bringing them the news of the Messiah to everybody and also fix their calendar. I don't know. But I do know that that's how the, that's how, that's how the old world was and that's how the Bible um, deals with their thing. So if you do some basic math and you realize that in 69 years and you divide that and you multiply that out by 360 days, it comes up to 173,880 days. You say, well, why does it really matter there was a, you know, 173,880 days? Um, because God is doing something here. He is teaching us something. He says, so that you will know and discern from the issuing of the decree to the rebuilding of Jerusalem until uh, about the rebuilding of the Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince, Mashiach Nagid, shows up, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, 69 weeks, and it will be built again with applause in the moat even in times of distress. So he's saying that all of that's going to happen. It's going to be 69 or 69 years in a 360-day calendar, which would be a, a total of 173,880 uh, 173, days. And when did the Messiah show up? The Messiah showed up on a very specific date. In April 6, 32 AD, he showed up on a donkey. Just as the prophet Zechariah said in Zechariah 9.9 that he would show up riding a donkey into the gates. And it's interesting, if you do the math, the time from, <laughs> this just blows me away every time I think about it, the time from March 14th, 445 B.C. to April 6th, 32 A.D. is exactly 173,880 days. There was no... There was, no, there was no fudge factor there. It was completely, 100% on time. And you say, well, how does, that, how does that factor in? Turn with me, keep your finger in, in, um, in Daniel. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. I want to show you something. Because I think this is an important thing. So during that day uh, that they were heading into for that final triumphal entry, when Jesus was coming into his own. And remind, or let me just remind you, when this was happening, there were things that were going on. There was a lot of political stuff happening. But this is what the Bible says in Luke chapter 19, in verse 28. It says, after he said these things, he was going ahead to go to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of, that was called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, and you'll enter there, you'll find the colt tied. He gives them the, gives them the phrase, if anybody says anything, say, 
say the Lord has need of it. And so those were sent, and while they were untying, the owner said to them, why are you untying it? He gave them the thing, they gave them the phrase, and, uh, they, they, and they let them have the donkey, and they brought it to Jesus. And as he was going uh, down that road, they were spreading their coats in the road, and as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise joyfully, Praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, teacher, stop your disciples from saying this. And Jesus answered, I, will, uh, I tell you, if they became silent, even the, even the stones would cry out. And as he was approaching Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept. And he said, If you had known this in this day... Even you, the things which may, which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from you. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw a barricade against you. And he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, but in verse 44, the final part of that, he says, well, I'll just go to the whole verse. And they will level you to the ground, your children with you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Talking about the temple. And here it is. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus knew, as long with the Pharisees, that the Messiah had to come within, like, that, that time period. Anybody that was keeping an accurate count could have easily saw that Jesus was supposed to come at that time. And Jesus, as he was approaching this, looked over the city and wept because they were missing the boat. But here's something that's really important, that even though they were missing the time frames, even though they didn't quite understand, and they should have, I mean, the Pharisees sort of understood. In fact, I think it's kind of interesting that every time we miss something important in the New Testament, the Pharisees are right there to, to remind us that we're missing something important, right? Because the Pharisees understood exactly what the disciples and the crowds were doing when they were laying the palm fronds down, they were putting their coats down, and Jesus was walking in, and they were saying, singing that great song, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was, a, that was the royal psalm. That was the song that was sung when the King, the Messiah, was going to come. That was the important song that would have been sung. And therefore, they were saying, in essence, that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was letting it happen. But the Pharisees, who understood that they were proclaiming him king, they weren't ready to acknowledge him as king. And they said, Jesus, make your men be quiet. And he said, I can't. Because if they were quiet, even the rocks would cry out. So whenever the, the, the Pharisees get upset, we need to take notice because there's something that, that, that's, that's important that we need to notice about that event. So when that happened, all of this came about and Jesus comes into the city exactly when it was prophesied that he was supposed to do. And then it says, the Bible says, after those uh, 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the, people in the print of the, uh, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end will come and with a flood, even to the end of the will be a war and desolations are determined. Now I'm going to stop right there because we're not going to get so deep into this because I think as our time starts to tick away, we need to really ask some important questions like, for instance, why are we even studying this? Um, I think it's important. Obviously, Jesus said it was important when he pulled his disciples aside. He's trying to remind us that he's on the throne, that he still has everything in control, but he also wants to remind us that we are going to be held accountable for knowing the signs and the seasons. You say, well, Pastor, we're not going to be able to know when Jesus is going to come back because he's going to come as a thief in the night. He's told us that. I agree. We may not know the date and the time and the hour, but we can know certain things about the signs and the seasons. And I'm telling you now, I, I look at this, I look at the nation, I look at the world, I look at all the things that were happening, I look at what Jesus said about how all men are going to revile us and how they're going to be throwing us in prison, and I look at the larger part of the, the, the church worldwide is in prison, or has um, had to go underground and hide themselves. If you don't believe me, there are tons of books out there. There are missionaries that will give you their account of time over this, of their times overseas. I'm telling you, it, it, when you get outside of America or outside of, of really like that European area where it's still okay for the most part to be a Christian, you get outside that little bubble into the rest of the world and you be proclaim Jesus Christ as, as king, you have a real chance of not making it back. My, one of my sons has a t-shirt 
that he loved to wear when he traveled. He says, this t-shirt is illegal in 52 countries in the world. And it talks about the gospel message on the front and the back. And he loves to wear that when he travels, at least he used to many years ago, uh, because it pointed to the fact that uh, even though he was traveling here, he was still a Christian. And I think a lot of times we miss that when we start looking at this. Luke holds the key for the Jews as well as for ourselves. And this is something that's important. Jesus... When he, when he came, when he was coming into Jerusalem, he wept. Jesus only cried like three times in the New Testament. This is one of them. And just like we should pay attention when the Pharisees cry out against what Jesus is saying or teaching or doing, whenever Jesus does something such to an extreme level like this, where, where true tears really come, the Bible says that he wept and he was in deep distress. Matthew talks about this, that his entire guts were twisted around. And, and, he, and he says in one of, the, one of the Gospels that he wanted, like a hen gathers her chicks close to her and holds them close. He wanted to do that to the nation of Israel, and in, in Jerusalem in particular, but but they didn't want him. They didn't realize the hour of his visitation. And that's something we need to remember too, is that we need to know now that his time is short, and we need to be prepared so that we can be like those wise virgins, virgins that, are, that are preparing for the coming of the king. Now, I, want, I would love to be able to get into the next few verses, which is 26 and 27, but we just don't have the time here to do that. But I'm going to tell you that if all goes well, and if, I can, if, if we can try to get all this research in, I'm going to try to finish up that part of it for this Wednesday, this coming Wednesday's broadcast. So I would encourage you to tune back in. We'll get that final part. But the part that I think that we need to see now is that, that, that God is on the throne. He is in control. And that it begins with prayer. It's interesting that when, when Daniel, in the beginning of this chapter, which we talked about last week, when Daniel was confronted with the end of his exile, the end of the exile that was going to take place in uh, for his people. He knew the time was coming. Isaiah had preached about it. Jeremiah had talked about it. He knew that the time was coming to an end. He had been reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he turns and he says, God, I know you're coming back. Now, if, if I told you, and, and you believe me, that Jesus was coming back next Thursday, right? If I said, next Thursday is the final day, I mean, how many of us would just, what would we do? You know, how many of us would just say, oh, great. It's like I'm going to have a week off, right? I'm just going to sit back in my easy chair. I'm going to throw my feet up. I'm going to open up a, a cold soda. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to watch some TV. I'm going to enjoy some leisure time. Because I know God's coming on Thursday, and so I don't need to really worry about it, right? I mean, that, that's, that's what, a, what a lot of people would do. But you know, the funny thing is, is that's the exact opposite of what Daniel did. Daniel looked at the end of the Messiah, of this, this exile, and the first thing Daniel did was fall on his face and pray. That's what we need, that's what we need to be thinking about. As we draw closer to the time, the coming times, and I, I say this all the time, I've been preaching this for the last 25 years, and, and I get a lot of amens. People always say, Jesus is coming back soon. Amen, brother, I know he is. You know, we all agree that that's happening. We look at the world, we look at the times, and we say, yes, definitely. And many of us like to say, well, and he's coming back soon, and that's the Antichrist. I already know it, uh, even though we don't know for certain who it is. Um, we know he's coming, but we don't know who it is. And, I mean, Satan doesn't even know who it is. I mean, only God really knows these things. And so, we oftentimes will point out these things and that things, and this is the mark of the beast, and we're always looking for these things. But the reality is we don't really know these things. God does. But when we see things that bring us to that place, it's not a time to kick our feet back and relax. It's a time to fall on our face and pray. I talked about this last week, and I, and I, I can't preach about this enough. One of the things that I see in the modern church that's, that, that I think is, is, is sad, and it, it hurts my heart more than I can possibly even tell you, is the lack of love and grace that I see in the current Christian world. The churches that display the kind of love that is Christ-like are the churches that are thriving. The churches that are dying are the ones that do not know how to show love and grace and mercy within their body. Because the reason why they're dying, the reason why they're falling apart is because you don't have people that are willing to love. Jesus talked about that. In the end times, there's going to be a great falling away that the, the love of others will, will grow cold. We get so jaded. We get so wrapped up in our own self and our own righteousness and our own whatevers and we don't even realize that Jesus is just simply saying the best way to show me love is to love the people in front of you. That's what we're called to do. 
We're not called to judge. We're not called to, 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 to bring accusations. We're not, we're not called to, to lift ourselves and our own idols and our own needs up above everything else. We are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ loved the church. It starts at home. Husbands and wives loving each other. You know, I've said this before in other sermons. You know, what would, what would our homes look like if, our, if, our, if moms and dads looked at it as a mission, right? A mission to love the other one more than they're being loved back, right? Like a competition. We have lots of competitions in the houses. But how many times do we have a competition to see who can love the other one more? Imagine what a church would be like if that was the competition we had. We have lots of competitions. Over the years, I've had numerous ones. I'm not one of those pastors that likes to sit up high and mighty. I love to challenge kids under in vacation Bible school and other times. I can't count the number of times that a kid has been able to memorize a bunch of verses and the prize by memorizing all those verses, he got to throw a pie in my face. I've got the pictures and the videos to prove it throughout the years. And I would gladly take a pie in the face if a kid can grow closer to Jesus because to me that's silly and I don't mind doing it. It's a small thing in order to see a kid draw closer to Jesus Christ. But imagine if our competitions in our churches were not about silly prizes like throwing a pie in the pastor's face, but imagine if our competitions were like where we were trying our hardest to love each other more and more and more and to see who could be the greatest purveyor of love in our churches. We don't see that. As soon as I say that, half the people that are listening to this broadcast that are, and I'm not trying to be mean, but maybe a little grumpy, maybe a little, little uh, self-indulgent, the first thing they do is cross their arms and say, well, tough love is a thing. Right? Well, yeah, tough love is a thing. Tough love is found on the cross. The toughest love that ever exists is when Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross and died for your sin and for mine. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The toughest love that ever happened. And here's the even tougher part of that love is that the Bible says that he was, he, he was, he was, he was bruised for our iniquity. He was, he, was, he, was, he was beaten. He was battered. He was crucified. And it pleased God that it happened. God wasn't happy that his son was being going through that, but he was happy at the result and the whole reason behind it. He was pleased with his son. You know, there are some things we need to realize that when we talk about tough love, that's the kind of tough love we're talking about. For us, we just need to love. And we do that best when we're on our face in prayer for God. That's the most important thing we can do. Daniel says that when he was struggling, when he was looking at the end times, when he was looking at the, at the time when his exiles would be over, he fell on his face and prayed. When was the last time we did that? I said it last week and I'll say it again this week. We need to be a people of prayer. A people, people of the book. People of love. You want to see a church thrive? Love each other. You want to see a people try to love each other? Start with prayer. It's hard to hate somebody or be angry at somebody when you're diligently praying for them. And I'm not talking about these kind of prayers like, oh Lord, I really can't stand that guy. Uh, encourage him to move. I really don't like that lady. Can you do something about uh, me never actually seeing her again? That's not really prayer. That's not really the kind of prayer we're talking about. We're talking about the insightful, deep prayer that a person will thrive and succeed and do well. The kind of prayer that builds somebody up, that, 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 helps, that helps give God that, 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 that idea and understanding that we're partnering with Him to see His children succeed. Because whether we like it or not, we're going to spend all eternity with each other. We need to start practicing that love now. I could preach on about this for, for hours, and I don't need to do that. I think you got the idea. But the whole point of this is, is that Jesus Christ loves us. And the other thing that we can see in this, if God is going to be as precise as he is about the timing of when he was going to enter into the city to begin those final weeks, to, to set that apocalyptic clock in motion, when the moment he set foot in Jerusalem, acknowledged as the king, that was going to be so precise right down to the very day, that if God is capable of orchestrating that entire event, he is capable of dealing with my life, my issues, my problems. Nothing takes God by surprise. Whether you're struggling, whether you're hurting, whether you're lonely, whether you're tired, no matter where you are, you need to know that God is in complete control. 
You say, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm doing good. I mean, I maybe having to do a little bit of quarantine. I'm not doing all the things I want to do, but I'm in a good place right now. That's fantastic. All that tells me is, A, get ready because you know, things are going to get a little rough, I guarantee you. Or B, you're in a place now where you can help people around you that aren't. Okay? So you need to ask yourself, if you're in a good spot, God, why am I there? If you're not in a good spot, if you're struggling, if you're in pain, if you need help, I can tell you this, A, number one, 100%, Jesus Christ loves you without a shadow of a doubt. The Bible says that he came to die for the whole world. He doesn't wish any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. But he also says that all are sinners. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. None are righteous. No, not one. Not you, not me. All of us are sinners. The Bible also says that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. He died so that our sin nature would be replaced with his righteousness. He took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. You say, well, pastor, does that mean everybody gets to go to heaven because of that? No, unfortunately not. Scripture also teaches that in order to become truly a friend with God, to be able to, 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 be, able to be called a ch child of the living God, a son or daughter of the living God, we have to do some things. The first thing we need to do is to acknowledge that we're sinners and we can't save ourselves. The next thing we have to do is, is repent of that sin. And then after we have acknowledged it, we've repented of that sin, we turn to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior because we know that our sin can only be dealt with because of His sacrifice. And we say, Jesus, because of your sacrifice, because of your willingness to do all that, we acknowledge you as our King, as our Master, as our Lord. And then in the process of repentance and sanctification and growing, we turn the rest of our life to Him. That's the process. I know I've said it in various different ways, and I know in the, in the Facebook feed there will be a pop-up about how to follow the Lord through salvation. But the reality is, if you just want to know more about this, if you want to have more discussion about who Jesus is and, and what He's done for you, I guarantee you we can give you those answers. You have to just reach out to us. There'll be some emails, uh, email addresses. There'll be um, a private messaging. There'll be some other options in the chat. I encourage you to reach out to those around you and those that you know that know Jesus because we're here to help you. If you're just tired, hungry, hurt, lost, lonely, reach out to us because I know that we have an answer for you from God's word. God is still on the throne. Daniel knew it. We know it. This next week, we're going to hopefully finish out this chapter, and then we're going to move into chapter 10 next week. It'll be the second week of Advent. We encourage you to come back and be with us face-to-face. -face. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, for those of you that come, uh, obviously we'll have some other encouragement about how to, how to be in the building and, and still be safe. Um, if you feel like you're not safe and you don't want to come out, I understand that. But we need to still um, meet. We need to get back together because this, this whole distance thing is driving me crazy, and I know it is you. So... That being said, let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer, and then we have a final song, and then uh, I'm going to encourage you to spend uh, the rest of the day and week uh, seeking the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we love you so much. We come before you this evening just in, in awe of your majesty, your wonder, and your amazing love for all of us. Father, we ask that you will give us the courage and strength we need to serve you, that you'll allow us to be able to be uh, your hands and feet to this peninsula and beyond. Father, we ask that you, if there's anyone in this audience that's watching this, that's watching this video, if any of them doesn't, don't know you as their uh, Lord and Savior, that you won't let the sun set without getting their heart right. For the rest of us that are love you and called according to your purpose, Father, I ask that you give us a mission this week to serve you and to be your, um, to, again, be your hands and feet, Lord, to be your image bearers to a community that needs it as we seek to bring the light of your love to a world that desperately is in darkness and needs it. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Thank you. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to ask our dear dear sister, Jeanne, to come up and, uh, and finish us out. Um, and I encourage you the rest of this week, go with God.